Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we look at superhuman colour vision, vitamin C and soap. But first up, here's the news. Do genetically modified crops upset pigs? The crops in question are corn and soy genetically modified to have a protein Bt that is toxic to insects, and another protein Ht that allows the plants to survive being sprayed with a weed killer marketed only by Monsanto. There's controversy in the scientific world over the interpretation of a study of feeding these foods with the extra proteins to 168 pigs. The question is whether the extra proteins are poisonous, do they upset the pigs? The first attack on the study was that its claims of poisonous proteins properly belong in a toxicology journal, not the Journal of Organic Systems. The fact that it's in the wrong type of journal means that toxicology experts haven't peer-reviewed the paper, only biologists. The lead author, Dr. Carmen, said that scientific peer review is scientific peer review, regardless of which journal, as long as it's properly done, and it was. The second attack on the study is that it examined 30 different variables at once, instead of the traditional one at a time that allows scientists to narrow in on cause and effect. This is a scientific sin of multiplicity. Unusually, the paper doesn't mention the hypothesis that they were setting out to test. These two factors throw doubt on the statistical significance of the findings because it looks like a fishing expedition. They'd be bound to find something unusual with so many variables, and then they can just report on the flukes. Statistical significance is measured against the hypothesis you're testing. Multiple tests make it ever more likely that you will find a random difference between the two groups. This makes it much more likely that the results are caused by chance. Dr. Carmen responds that they did in fact intend to look for effects on the pig's stomachs of the modified crops, even if it doesn't say that in the paper. So there was a connection to what they're looking for and what they found. The last attack is the most significant. Dr. Carmen and her team made a choice to divide the pigs with upset stomachs into healthy, moderately inflamed, and severely inflamed. There is no standard for difference between moderate and severe inflammation. Dr. Carmen concluded that severe inflammation went from 12% in pigs eating regular crops, increasing to 31% in pigs eating the modified corn and soy. They measured a drop in moderate inflation from 29% to 25%. Dr. Carmen and her team conclude from this that the modified crops caused a statistically significant increase in severe inflammation and therefore a cause for concern for humans, since the pig's stomachs and ours work in similar ways. 
Her opponents say that her division of the sick pigs into moderate and severe was completely arbitrary, and that scientifically it's only valid to look at the overall numbers of pigs with inflamed stomachs, with moderate and severe added together. When you do this, you find that the increased percentage of pigs with sick stomachs is not statistically significant, so it's not an important result. The fact that there's a reduction in moderate inflammation doesn't seem to make sense if it's the genetically inserted extra proteins that are causing the inflammation. You'd expect both types of inflammation to go up significantly. With poisons, you also expect to see a connection between the dose eaten and the harmful response, and that seems to be missing. Everyone agrees that more rigorous studies are needed. The paper is titled, A Long-Term Toxicology Study on Pigs Fed a Combined Genetically Modified GM Soy and GM Maize Diet. It was published in the Journal of Organic Systems. Superhuman Vision There are people that can see more colours than the average person. Some people who have had cataracts removed can see into the ultraviolet, and rare people born with an extra cone in their eyes can see extra hues of red and green. Human eyes see with rods and cones. The rods work in low light and in your peripheral vision, and the cones detect colour. Most people have three types of cones on their retina. L cones detect long wavelength light and let you see yellow and red. M cones detect medium wavelength and detect green most strongly. S cones detect short wavelengths and detect blue the strongest. Our brains see colour by sensing the difference between the strength of signals from light detected by all three types of cones. It's all about contrasts. The commonest type of colour vision problem is red-green blindness, which is caused by the L or M cones being damaged, mutated or missing. People with red-green blindness will have trouble telling the difference between red and green. Red-green blindness is more common in men than women because the genes for L and M cones are carried on the X chromosome. Men have only one X chromosome, so if it's damaged, then they'll be born with red-green blindness. Women have two X chromosomes, so they're very likely to have a backup gene that gives them full colour vision. Blue and yellow blindness is very rare. People with blue and yellow blindness have trouble telling the difference between blue and green and between yellow and violet. Women can have this as often as men because it's on chromosome 7, which both sexes have. Humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes with two copies of chromosome 7. The experience of seeing colour is something that used to be in the realms of philosophy, because it was considered that we couldn't ever know what it felt like to see the world as other people did, and we had no way to tell if people see colours the same way that we do. However, as the science of vision developed, tests for colour vision have been invented, such as the Ishihara test, which consists of a series of cards or pages with patterns of coloured dots. People with normal vision can see numbers and letters marked out in colour differences, whereas people with red, green, blue, yellow or complete colour blindness won't be able to see the symbol patterns, just dots. 
There are also patterns that are only visible to people with red-green blindness, and patterns only visible to the contrast seen by people with blue-yellow blindness. There's also a colour gradient test, where you're presented with a line of colour squares and you must resort them from left to right, from one colour shading to the next. There are free online versions of both tests. Very rarely, some people are born with four cones instead of three, which may let them see lots of extra colours between the usual ones that we who have three cones can see. Tetrachromatic people have four cones and they're always women. Again, it's that extra X chromosome. In 1948, a Dutch scientist, De Vries, was studying men with red-green blindness. He had them mixing light from red and green lamps to make a yellow colour that matched a target standard yellow. The men needed to add more red or green than people with full colour vision. Out of curiosity, he tested the men's daughters as well. They weren't colourblind, but they needed more red light to make the standard yellow than most people with full colour vision. Since red-green blindness in families usually affects just the men, what was going on? De Vries thought that the men had two normal cones and a mutant third cone, which is why they had trouble telling between red and green. Their daughters had all three cones plus the mutant cone as a fourth cone. They weren't seeing less colours, they were seeing more. When Newcastle University neurobiologists in the 1980s started testing tetrachromatic women for extra ability to see colours, they were very disappointed. It turns out that inheriting the extra cones isn't enough to make them functional. After 20 years, they finally found a woman in the UK in 2007 who can see the extra shades of colours using her fourth cone. They call her CDA29. Sitting in a dark room, women saw three coloured circles flash before their eyes. To someone with the common three cones, they all looked the same. To a four-coned eye, however, one would stand out. That circle was not a pure colour, but a subtle mixture of red and green light. Only a tetrachromat would be able to see the difference, thanks to the extra shades made visible by her fourth cone. Why can CDA29 see extra hues when other tetrachromats can't, and how many extra colours can she see? The answer is still being investigated. There are some people who can see a little into the ultraviolet. The reason is that they've had their eyes lenses removed by surgery to treat cataracts. Cataracts are when the lens in your eye clouds over, stopping you from seeing clearly. The lens absorbs some blue and ultraviolet. Back in the Second World War, the German Navy was signalling off the coast of Britain with ultraviolet blacklight lamps. They were only visible with ultraviolet detectors. However, the British military discovered that men who'd had cataracts removed could see the ultraviolet flashes in the water and tell them where the enemy was. Today, if you need to have a cloudy lens removed from your eye, it will be replaced by a plastic lens implant. It's up to your doctor's medical philosophy whether they choose for you a blue blocking lens or one that's transparent to all colours. If you have one that doesn't block ultraviolet, then you can see some extra colours past the violet. A doctor who recently had a cataract removed from one eye had his lens replaced with such an implanted lens. And he went on to document online how he's been seeing different colours out of the eye that's had surgery. 
In rooms with UV lights, he can see a bright glow where other people, or his other eye, sees only a faint purple glow. In dark rooms, he can see much better than other people. He misses out on fluorescently glow-in-the-dark painted objects because for him, it's not usually dark enough to be able to see the contrast of the glow. Some doctors believe that it's better to replace the lens with one that blocks these ultraviolet colours, just like a natural lens does, because blue light is a big influence on our circadian rhythms. The blue light tells you when it's daytime and when you should suppress melatonin production and stay awake. As people age, even if their lenses don't cloud over with a cataract, the eye's lens can become yellow, changing slightly the colours you can see. This may explain why some people start having sleeping problems as they age, and why some people's sleeping improves after they've had a cataract removed and an artificial lens implanted. The science isn't certain. Many people with artificial lenses that allow in all the blue and the ultraviolet can still sleep normally. So some doctors go for an artificial lens that lets you see like a natural but clear lens, and some will prescribe an implant that lets you see better than a natural lens. The doctor with his blog has now had surgery to remove a cataract in his other eye, so now he can't compare the differences he's seeing. However, he visited a vision lab and had himself tested, so the exact amount of extra colours that he can see has been scientifically documented. There are now online communities for people who can see ultraviolet colours after cataract surgery and information for people planning cataract removal who want to decide whether to see the extra colours or not. So if you're the mother or daughter of a man with red-green blindness, you may have a fourth cone which may let you see extra colours between the colours that we trichromats can see. Evolutionary neurobiologist Mark Chainese doubts that tetrachromacy is functional in an evolutionary sense. That is, it's not adaptive, not selected and passed on because it helps people see something better. It's just a mutation. The paper is titled The Dimensionality of Colour Vision in the Carriers of Anomalous Trichromacy and was published in the journal Vision. If you've had a cataract removed and the right kind of plastic lens implanted, then you can see extra colours past violet. If you also have tetrachromacy, I'd really like to see the art you can create, but with my mere three cones and natural lens, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. From the 20 kilobit archives, Chris Stewart tells us what connects pirates, Terence Stamp, and vitamin C. Vitamin C, which is for scurvy. Now, uh, there's a lot of that around these days. The way we chuck that vitamin C down our throat, it's like a scurvy plague just around the corner. Can't come into work, got scurvy, oh yes. Yeah, fluffing at the knees, and yeah. Well, I live on a pirate ship, so you can't get the fruit in, you see. Just can't get that fruit, can you? Okay, quick pop quiz, everyone. What's the connection between actor Terence Stamp, Captain Cook, and two-time Nobel Prize winner Linus Pauling. Give up? It's scurvy, the disease you get when you haven't had enough vitamin C. Look, I'll explain. Just stick with me for a second, all right? Scurvy's related to what you eat, or rather, what you don't eat. 
Scurvy is what results from a severe deficiency of ascorbic acid, more commonly known as vitamin C. And given that we're all pretty aware of our diets these days, and C being one of the better known vitamins, scurvy has all but disappeared off the medical radar, which means it's all the more startling when you do see it. Scurvy victims suffer a wide range of symptoms, from a general weakness of the muscles to joint pain, strange dark spots on the skin, bleeding gums, even blood under the fingernails. Body hair becomes weak and kinked, a condition called corkscrew hair, and the follicles themselves start to bleed. The teeth become loose as their roots start to break down, and eating becomes intolerably painful. It's not a pretty disease. Vitamin C is most often associated with citrus fruits, oranges, lemons, grapefruit, but many distinctly non-citrusy fruits and veggies are high in C as well. Romaine lettuce is chock full of the stuff. So what do we need vitamin C for anyway? Well, it's just one of a myriad of different chemicals the body requires to keep itself in good shape. But such is the complexity of human biology that if you take just one of those thousands of chemicals away, everything goes a bit pear-shaped. Vitamin C is necessary in producing collagen, a protein that helps to bind and connect body tissue. And when you cut yourself, the tissues are bound back together with collagen forming a scar. Without enough collagen, body tissue begins to fall apart, hence all the pain and the bleeding and the loose teeth. Part of the problem with vitamin C is that we humans, together with our primate cousins, have to get it from our food. Most other animals can make their own, in a similar way to our body's ability to produce vitamin D when we go out in the sunshine. Which is probably why you don't see dogs and cats getting stuck into the fruit bowl when you're not looking. They don't need as much dietary vitamin C as we do. They make their own. Somewhere in the dark, distant past of evolution, we lost our ability to produce vitamin C, and now we're forever needing to stock up. It takes between three and six months of vitamin C deprivation to bring on the nastier symptoms of scurvy, which is why the disease is usually associated with explorers and seafarers of years ago. Where else to really deprive yourself of a well-rounded diet than on an ocean voyage lasting months on end, or on a quest to be the first to visit the South Pole? The great explorers of times past eventually learned to stock up on foods rich in sea for their long journeys across the globe. Captain James Cook used to force his crew to eat all sorts of foul-tasting stuff just to keep their vitamin C levels up. And in 1795, the British Royal Navy mandated that all sailors should have a daily ration of lime or lemon juice, which is why Brits became known as limeys, as in the violent 1990 film by Steven Soderbergh, starring the wonderful Terence Stamp, who you might remember more as the gorgeous drag queen Bernadette in 1994's Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So if Stamp was a limey and Captain Cook knew how to combat scurvy with vitamin C, what about Nobel Prize winner Linus Pauling? Well, Pauling was a vitamin C nut. One of only a few people to win two Nobel Prizes, one for chemistry and one for world peace, Pauling became interested in the role of vitamin C in the chemistry of the human body back in 1966, and he vigorously promoted its use throughout his life. He believed vitamin C could combat heart disease and helped build strong blood vessels, and advocated high doses, very high doses. The daily intake of vitamin C recommended by most health groups is about 60 milligrams. 
Pauling took 300 times that amount every day up until the day he died in 1994 at the ripe old age of 93. So maybe he knew what he was talking about. Vitamin C deficiency, scurvy, discoveries, disease of the week. That was Chris Stewart on the importance of a balanced diet, including plenty of fruit and vegetables. Comedian Eddie Izzard helped drive the point home at the start. Ever wonder how the things you use every day work? Ever think about being stuck on a desert island, in the middle of the bush, or travelling back in time, and needing to make your own version of the essentials of life? Or is that just me? Soap has been known to be essential to a long and healthy life since the discovery of the importance of hygiene. How does soap work, and how would you make it without being able to buy ingredients from the shops? The oils on your skin, or clothes, or dishes don't dissolve in water, which means water isn't enough to clean them away. Soap molecules are structured as spheres, or micelles, where the outside is water-attracting, and the inside attracts oils. This means that oils on skin, clothes and dishes are absorbed into the soap molecules, and the watery outside of the dirt-filled soap can be dissolved in the water to be rinsed away. Modern soap is manufactured using sodium hydroxide, which is an alkali. Alkalis are the opposites to acids, but will burn just as strongly. Acids donate protons, whereas alkalis or bases accept protons. If you mix an acid and an alkali, you'll get salt and a neutralised base. Hydrochloric acid and sodium hydroxide will make sodium chloride, salt and water. The sodium hydroxide used in modern soap is manufactured using industrial techniques, so modern soap makers just buy it. Obviously, the ancients didn't just buy it from an industrial outlet shop, and neither could you if you were stuck in a remote area. The big clue to the ancient way of making soap is in the word alkali. It's from the Arabic word for ashes, alkali. And in Europe, the ashes from fires were potash, the root word for potassium. You can make an alkali by straining water through white ashes, but you need to be extremely careful because the alkali is very, very dangerous. No children should ever be allowed to do this unsupervised. The alkali liquid made from ashes can burn your skin, and if it splashes into your eyes, it can permanently blind you. I don't know how our ancestors survived. Don't do any experiments with making alkali from ashes without wearing rubber gloves on your hands, safety goggles over your eyes, and be totally covered in protective clothing. Be very respectful of this dangerous material. Even the wet ashes left over are very dangerous, and the only safe disposal is to bury them. If someone is burned by the alkali, rinse their skin with vinegar or lemon juice, followed immediately by fresh water flushes. They should see a doctor if any burning feeling continues. If their eyes are splashed, their eyes should be flushed with fresh water, and the person splashed taken to the hospital immediately. On the way, cover their eyes and continue flushing with clean water. Keep eye bandages wet with clean sterile water and don't put vinegar or lemon juice in their eyes. The ancient way of making soap uses wood, 
an animal fat or vegetable oil. Any edible fat or oil will do. If you're out camping, you could get your dirty fry pan, which will be dirty with grease from your food, and throw in some white ash. The ash should start a chemical reaction that will make crude soap good enough to clean the dishes, if not quite good enough to clean you. Otherwise, what people have done for thousands of years is either drain water through white ash, or boil white ash up and skim or strain off the alkali. Both methods have the danger of splashing your eyes. Boiling is more dangerous. People melted their animal fats or vegetable oils, and then mixed the melted oils into the extracted ash juice alkali. A chemical reaction in the mixture, called saponification, produces soap molecules. The mixture is poured into a mould, and you eventually end up with a bar of soap. How hard or soft the soap becomes when it's solid depends on what was burned to make the ash. There are soap making tutorials online that list the different types of plants you can burn to get different hardnesses. Some processes add salt at the end to make the soap harder. Liquid soap wasn't invented until 1865 and was made from palm and olive oils and marketed as palm olive. This was back in the days before palm oil farming was responsible for clearing rainforests. So if you're transported back in time, or stuck in the bush, or trapped on a desert island, all you need to keep clean is a plant to burn into white ashes, water, some sort of fat or oil, and a good supply of rubber gloves, safety goggles, and thick clothing to protect every part of you from being exposed to the nasty burning alkali. Or you could just bring some soap. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send us an email so we know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Contributing from the 20 kilobit archives was Chris Stewart. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>